remain standing. I'm not going to uh, speak into this very much, but I, I want to say it never ceases to amaze me in the providence of God why uh, certain things are talked about on certain Sundays, but months ago, um, God decided on January 10th that I would preach on Romans 14, 7 to 9, and it could not be more appropriate. Um, I'll tell you on uh, the days this last week, on Wednesday, uh, I had EPC pastors from all over the country in town, and we were out doing our thing. I wasn't looking at the news, and when I got a text from Case to ask if I was watching the TV, and I said no, uh, he then shared uh, the information, and uh, I felt physically ill for a couple of minutes. You know, your stomach just drops, and I felt overwhelmingly sad at what was a horrific, uh, unconscionable event in our nation's history, but it has everything to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning, because all of those people were influenced. They didn't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I think I'll do this. They were all influenced and taught and trained, and it's just one example of how that is happening in every dimension of our culture. And it's happening, guess what, to every one of you. We are being influenced by our culture. We are being trained. And I'll borrow from Tony Evans, who said, he's a pastor in Dallas, he said, the answer to what is wrong in our country will not be found in the White House, but in the church house. And I pray that this is an inflection point where people recognize we've gotten to a place from which we must go no further. And we must go back to the things that we know to be true. And so everything about this morning is our need to be retrained according to the counsel and the word of God, because that is what you need, it's what I need, it's what this country needs. And so that guides our message this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we need you. But in our heart of hearts, we need to yield to you. We need to be spiritually astute enough to see where we are being influenced and trained that we might turn back in some cases to the things of you, our God, that we might turn back to the church. We've become so disconnected in this COVID season. Father, that we need to reconnect. We need to re-engage. Father, we need your lordship because quite frankly, Father, you're all we've got. And you're all that we need. So come by your spirit to overcome my sin. Speak to your people these days, in this day, so that you alone would be glorified. For we pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Our reading from Romans 14, 7 to 9, Paul writes, For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord 
of both the dead and the living. This is the word of the Lord, the Lord to whom you belong, and may its power today move us to a renewal and a restoration of faith and hope as we trust singularly in him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Several years ago, not several years ago, I'd, I'd like to think it was only several years ago. It was a lot of years ago. When I was living uh, in Chattanooga, we lived on Signal Mountain. Our kids were little. I used to play pickup basketball on uh, Monday nights and Saturday mornings as a means of staying in shape. And I found a group of guys that were really good players, but they were not necessarily churchgoers. And unfortunately, they began to uh, influence me and rub off on me a little bit. I was not someone who who really cussed or swore uh, at all. Those just weren't words that popped into my mind. But every time I was playing basketball with these guys, it seemed like every other word was not exactly one intended for personal encouragement, if you know what I mean. And so I would play and hang out and then I'd go home. And, and honestly, I didn't really think anything of it. It didn't occur to me that that might rub off on me in some way until in my mind, in certain situations, those words started to pop into my head. And I don't wanna give you the picture that I was just cussing and swearing all the time because I wasn't, but in, in certain moments, like when one of the kids had a particularly fragrant diaper or I you know, knocked over a glass of milk or I jammed my toe on a chair, I would find these words popping out of my mouth. And, and honestly, it seemed to me at the time like no big deal. It's like, ah, so I said a bad word. You know, I'd kind of go on about my day and I know I can't blame those guys solely for the choices that I was making, but clearly they were influencing me and naturally Lee got on me. She was like, do you realize that how you're speaking, how your vocabulary has changed in certain situations? And she should have, but I still just underestimated that, didn't really take it very seriously until I realized how I was influencing other people, including my three-year-old son. John David, at the time, he's three, and he's in that constant position that you see many mothers where he was just kind of permanent planted on her right hip, right? She's got him right here all the time, and she's at the kitchen island, and she's making lunch or whatever she was doing, and she knocked something over. I don't even know what it was, but she knocked something over, and in perfect cadence, with perfect timing, my three-year-old son looked at Lee and said, well, shoot, mommy. Only the word was not shoot. And Lee looked at me and she goes, great job, dad. Way to train your child. And that pierced me because I, I had totally underestimated not only how I was being influenced, but how I was now influencing others. I was influencing the life of my child. So I quickly made some changes and got that under control. And that hadn't been a problem since that time. But my point is this, I want you to understand, as I just said, you are being influenced. You are being trained, you're being taught, you're being shaped, you're being molded by the culture by the society around you and her mores and her standards and her values and her vocabulary. And too often we sit back and shrug our shoulders and we go, oh, it's not really that big a deal. We underestimate it. But Paul in Romans 1:21 reminds us of the dangers. 
He says, for although they knew God, and that phrase chills me, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So there was no worship, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So let me ask you this. Have you noticed lately that over the last 20 years or so, that things that you and I used to consider to be lies, all of a sudden the culture says is true. Have you noticed lately that the culture seems to want to worship creatures and created things and not the creator? People don't go to worship anymore. Have you noticed that there are people who fancy themselves the wise of the world? the academics and the intellectual elites on college campuses who say that they know what's right and what's wrong and they give a dismissive wave and declare that scripture is mere foolishness. Have you noticed that? And taken individually, we can kind of give a shrug of the shoulder and go, well, yeah, I see that. I, and I, you know, not a whole lot I can do about it, but you know, it's probably no big deal. But when you stand back and you take it collectively, it ought to sound to you in your ears like the sound of your pastor swearing. It ought to be shrill. It ought to be nails on a chalkboard when we realize the influence of our culture, the outsized influence of our culture that is shaping American lives and it's shaping the American church. And if we shrug our shoulders, even when we see it and we kind of go, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. I guess it's too big and we just accept the change and we go on. C.S. Lewis wrote in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, please read this. It's a, it's a book where a senior demon is writing letters to a junior demon, giving the junior demon advice on how to keep his patient away from God. And in it, he writes, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And see, I fear that the changes in our culture have been so slow, so gradual, so soft underfoot that we've stopped objecting that we've become too easily influenced. We now live in a land with no signposts. And if that's the case, then I believe it's time for the church to do something about it. If we're being trained and taught and shaped by the culture, then it is the church's job to do some retraining and reshaping and reteaching. If the church has traditionally called the way we teach our people, we've called that catechesis. The word catechism literally means a series of fixed questions, answers, or precepts used for instruction. So maybe some of you are old enough to remember being drilled on the answers to the Westminster Shorter Catechism when you were in Sunday school. And if that's a foreign document to you in our church, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the single confessional statement that defines what it is we believe and why. 
So how do you learn it? You learn it through catechesis, a series of questions and answers. And we do that in our church. Our students, when they're in confirmation, they learn the answers to some of the catechism questions. For example, question number one, and some of you may know this, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. The reason you exist, the chief end, why are you here? What's your purpose? I'm to glorify God. And as I glorify him, I'm to enjoy him, right? So that's the first question, the purpose of our lives. So here's my point. If the culture is catechizing us with the answers to its questions, and it's given us very clear answers, then the church needs a counter catechesis. That's why the sermon series for the next whole year is called Counter Culture, because we need a counter to the training of the culture. We need to teach you something bedrock and foundational that will stand up against the way the world is influencing you. So for the next 50 weeks, we're gonna look at Tim Keller's New City Catechism. It has a devotional. There'll be information on our website if you wanna buy that book and follow along with us. It's a little more user-friendly than the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a little bit more accessible. And we're not gonna take the questions in order. I'm not gonna go one, two, three, four, five, but I'm gonna follow the church's liturgical year as we're doing across the board in our church. So this morning, we will kick it off with the first question and answer. And the way we'll do this every Sunday, is on the screen, I'll read the question, and then the answer will come up and you will read the answer. So question one in the New City Catechism is this. What is my only hope in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. So the text that undergirds that is the text I read to you from Romans chapter 14, verses seven and nine. It's a text in which Paul is raising the question of lordship, a question, where do we find our hope? What's our only comfort? Who's the one to whom we belong? He's asking all those questions of lordship and make no mistake, every one of you is following someone or something. Every single one of you. Every one of you has a Lord in some way. And the things that we make Lord of our lives are those things that we believe give us the best chance of the life that we want. So if you think that's money, if you think that's reputation, if you think it's being involved in a far left political group or a far right political group, or you believe maybe it's the life of your kids and their success, whatever it is you believe, you're gonna follow and give yourself to that thing. And here's what I found interesting. COVID has done us a favor in this actually, because COVID has torn the facade down around some of the things that we were following and COVID has shown actually, no, I can't depend on those things. I thought my life was gonna be found in my ability to do this or do that or be with these people. And now we know I can't depend on that. So if I can't depend on those things, then what or who Am I going to depend on who is the Lord of my life? And keep in mind that Paul puts this at the very end of his letter. He's already made the case for the hope of the gospel, sin and salvation, our redemption in Christ, the love of God in Christ, the call of the church. And now in chapter 14, essentially what he's saying is, do you believe that and have you acted on it? 
Do you believe it and have you acted on it? So let's dig into the answer to the question. What is my, what is your only hope in life and in death? Well, looking at the scripture first, we don't live alone and we don't die alone, which is Paul's way of saying, when we go through life, we're gonna pick something that we're gonna follow that's gonna go with us. It's gonna define how we live, how we behave, how we speak. And when the time comes to die, whatever it is we've hitched our wagon to, that's what we're gonna depend on to give us a sense of peace and comfort. So this morning, let me ask you, right now in your guts, by yourself, nobody else knows, what is the one thing or the one person that you depend on more than anything else? Be honest with yourself. We all wanna give the Sunday school answer. Oh, well, it's Jesus. Is it? Is it really? Thank you. I believe that's true, Martel. And let me ask you this. If you knew that you were gonna die in the next couple of days, would your answer change? Martel is my man. Martel's my amen corner. See, here's the deal. It's just been so fascinating to me to read Facebook lately, which I, I don't do for entertainment, I do for education. And I see all these people posting their New Year's treatises about what happened in 2020 and oh, how I was able to accomplish all these things in spite of COVID and yes, I was very, very successful. And then they're talking about everything that's gonna happen in 2021 and I'm gonna do this. And I could have sworn that COVID had disavowed us of that notion that we were in control of anything, but apparently not because people continue to say, well, I'm gonna learn this thing and I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna grow in this area and my business is gonna do this. So in essence, the cultural answer to the question, what is my only hope in life and in death? The cultural answer is me, me. The culture says I am my only hope in life and in death. So let me ask you this morning, what is yours? What's your only hope? in life and death? What's the one thing you depend on? Your answer to that all depends on how you understand verse nine. Paul writes, for this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Put another way in one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, six, verse 20, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. It is a question of lordship. Do you believe that you are your own or do you believe that God purchased your life at the cross? He bought you with the giving of his life and therefore you are no longer your own, but you belong body and soul in life and death unto your faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Do you just say that or do you believe it? Because I can tell you this, the culture finds the answer, the Christian answer to that question, abhorrent. The culture says we don't belong to anybody else. We belong to ourselves. I decide. I decide what's true. I decide how I'm gonna behave. I decide how I'm gonna live. But the answer to the question says, you do not belong to you. You don't get to go off in the world and do what you want. If you truly are a Christian, someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to the Lord. 
He not only saved you, but he is now the Lord of your life. So he calls the shots, not you. He dictates your behavior and your language and your giving, not you. He's Lord. Let me tell you how this plays out practically. Give you an idea of what's happened in this church in the last four and a half months. The last four and a half months, I've done nine funerals. There are some years where I don't do nine funerals. And I've done nine in four and a half months, one of which was my mother's. None of them have been COVID related. And seven of the nine have been tragic. An aortic aneurysm, a stroke, a drowning, a heart attack, a suicide, a catastrophic blood infection. I've sat in every living room. I've sat in every hospital room. I've held the hands of those who are being crushed by grief. I've held the hands of the dying as they passed into the next life. And please let me be a human being, people. Sometimes I think people look at me and what I do and they go, oh, well, that's what he's supposed to do. He gets used to it. Used to it? Does anybody ever get used to holding the hands of those people crushed by grief? Does anybody ever get used to the hands of watching somebody you love die? I certainly hope not. And pastors never do, I can assure you. But I know what I learned in those rooms, in those homes, in those hospitals, was in those moments, I've got only one thing. I know that one thing only matters. My only hope in life and death is Jesus. And I've only got one thing to give. In life and in death, I can only give to those people, give to the dying, give to the grieving one thing. And it's that we belong in life and in death to Jesus Christ who died and who was raised again. And the beauty of those moments is that not only was that my learning and discovery, but it was also what was given to me in beautiful and sometimes poetic witness by those who were grieving and dying. From the lips of the dying, I know that Jesus loves me. From the lips of those grieving, I am depending only on Jesus for he's all I've got. It's the only place I can turn. They said it to me over and over again. Jesus is my only hope. And so my question is, is he yours? That's the question that you have to answer today. That's the reality you have to face. What is your only hope in life, but also in death? because we're all gonna get there. What is the one thing on which you depend today? I pray that you would answer with the catechism that my only hope is Jesus. Jesus, not only my savior, but my Lord, because when you answer that question, then number two, if if I have declared that my life is not my own, then what does that mean? It means what verse eight says. If we live, we live to the Lord. It means that our life should reflect his lordship. It's not just in the hospital room with the grieving and the dying, but it's when you're at work, in your home, with your spouse, with your friends. Do you live to the Lord? Is he clearly being demonstrated by your behaviors and your words and your actions? Is he the Lord of your life? Put another way in Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So what does that mean? It means that if you don't belong to yourself, then you don't make the determination any longer about what you're gonna do. You go to the one who's the Lord of your life and you say, Lord, how would you want me to live? Lord, what would you want me to do in this situation? We would ask ourselves in any moment, what would the Lord have me do? You don't belong to yourself. So when it comes time to whether or not you're gonna give to the church, those are the hard parts. You go, all right, Lord, what would you have me do? It's pretty clear. So do you yield or do you still control? And that's true across every element of your life. Do you yield your will to the will of the Lord? And friends, this is where we experience freedom. Freedom, because when you yield to the Lordship of Christ, you are no longer bound and burdened and enslaved by the things of this world. You already have what you need, so you no longer need to manipulate your surroundings to get what you need. You don't have to manipulate your relationships to get the love and the dignity that you feel you must have. You don't have to put things on Facebook, pictures of yourself that kind of look sexy, that make everyone else go, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so, you don't need to do that anymore. You don't have to put things on social media about the most recent award that you've won because you need other people to validate who you are. You've already been validated. You're free to love other people unconditionally. Why? Because you don't need anything back. You're not trying to get them to do anything for you. You just love them freely, unconditionally in the manner of Jesus because your cup has been filled. And you know the way your cup gets filled more often than not? By the people in this room by the gathered community of faith. It's why it's so important when COVID lifts that we come back together in worship because the gathered community of faith matters. Being connected, being engaged, being invested in the work of God in a church community is where we find the things of God. It's where our cups are filled. It's the way you loved me when my mother died. Your cards and notes, it's the way you've loved others in this church who have grieved the loss of their loved ones. It's the way you love the unlovable. David King was the last of those nine funerals that I did. I did it December 29th. David King was a well-respected, almost iconic attorney in Orlando, a man I just loved and admired because his ego was almost non-existent. And he had this servant heart that emerged why? Because Jesus was Lord of his life. And in his funeral, I told this story about a moment where he was walking down the street with another attorney and they encountered a homeless man. And instead of just walking past, which is typically what you and I do because we don't wanna be near homeless people, they're kind of the lepers of our day. They're, they're the outcasts. They're, they're the ones we don't know. And we, we just wanna stay away from them because they make us feel uncomfortable. But instead, David asked the homeless man what his name was. And in doing so, in that instant, he restored to that man his sense of dignity and worth because by asking his name, he was saying, I see you. You have an identity. 
You have a history. You're somebody's brother, somebody's son. You were somebody's friend. You have a life. And all that is held in our names. He said, what is your name? I see you. And then he took that name and he touched him. And he used that name to pray over this homeless man. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure I've ever seen a more clear description of what it means when Paul says, if we live, we live to the Lord. That's what it looks like. It means we see people. It means our ego fades. It means our heart emerges. It means we belong to the Lord such that we yield to him and see the world through his eyes. But see, that's the great paradox, isn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, then you'll find it. And see the cultural answer to the catechism question, what's your only hope in life and death? The culture answers me. Well, that just means you're trying to save your life. And the only way they'll ever find the freedom and the life that they're looking for is when they stop trying to stop trying to save themselves and they give up their lives for the sake of Christ. God can't give to anything except empty hands. And then the last thing I'll share is this. We're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at some point. We can do it now or we can do it later. But Paul writes, not only in verse nine, that Jesus is the Lord of both the dead and the living. That's everybody, past, present, and future, the dead and the living. But he says one verse later in verse 10, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess. So the Lord is judge and at some point, whether you confessed him here and you go on to heaven or whether you didn't confess him here and you now stand before the seat of Christ, at some point you will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because we believe that Christ alone is our only hope. That's why the question says, what's your only hope? And the answer is, I'm not my own. We've got one shot at this. As Bill Hybel said, it's either Jesus or it's lights out. And if you believe, oh no, all religions lead to the top of the mountain. All religions lead to God. No, they don't. Because two contradictory truths can't both be true at the same time. Logic tells you that. And your Christian theology falls apart if you allow for all religions leading to God. Because now God, instead of being loving and gracious, now God is murderous and cold because he kills Jesus for no reason. If all other religions work, God doesn't kill Jesus. Jesus is not sacrificed, but he was. And so basically, you know what? We got two options. Either we're right and everybody else is fools or we're all here for no good reason, but there's no middle way. There's no middle ground. We have to decide. And I pray that coming out of COVID and coming out of the chaos of what's happening in this country, that we would renew our understanding and yield to the Lordship of Christ and declare yet again that Jesus Christ is my only hope, body and soul in life and in death, I give myself to him. Blaise Pascal in closing was a very famous French physicist and mathematician. 
in the 1600s and he said something that has become quite famous. He wrote, if you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he exists. So put in more modern language, if I as a Christian am right and you as a non-Christian are wrong, I gain everything. But if you as a non-Christian are right and I'm wrong, then I lose nothing. We're all just food for worms and we go to darkness. So what are you going to wager your life on? Pascal said, wager without hesitation on what the preponderance of the evidence reveals, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. I pray that you would confess afresh and anew today the answer to the question, what's your only hope? Your only hope in life and death, body and soul, is that you are not your own, but you belong unto your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, for he is the hope of your life. He's the hope of this church. He's the hope of our country. He's the hope of the world. Let us pray. Oh God, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would call us back to you today that you would by your spirit help us each one identify the places that we have been influenced by the world, where we've been pulled away, where we have been led to believe in lies, not truths, where we've been taught to worship creatures and not you, the creator, where we have started to believe and doubt because of the wisdom of the world calling us fools when it is the opposite that is true. Lord, convict us where we need. And may we spend some serious moments asking ourselves that question. What is our only hope? I pray that we would say from the depths of our souls with great conviction that we belong in life and death, body and soul to you, our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.